Hello, it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to the annual Aquinas Lecture. On behalf of the Aquinas Institute, which I direct, on behalf of the Regent and moderators of Blackfriars Hall, and on behalf of the Prior and Dominican community at Blackfriars. I should also like to wish you a happy Feast of St. Thomas. It's a pity we can't entertain you with a glass of wine after this lecture or invite you to join us for Sung Vespers, hopefully this time next year. I'm delighted to introduce Professor Mark Wynne, who has graciously agreed to deliver this year's Aquinas Lecture. He knows Blackfriars of old, since he did his doctorate in Oxford from 1987 to 1991, I think, supervised by Professor Richard Swinburne and by Brian Davis, who was Vice Regent, then Regent of Studies at Blackfriars at the time. Professor Wynne has held posts at several universities and most recently at Leeds and has returned to Oxford as Nolloth Professor of the Philosophy of the Christian Religion. So we congratulate him on this appointment and welcome him back to Oxford. Besides many articles, he has published, I think, seven books. The most recent is entitled Spiritual Traditions and the Virtues living between heaven and earth. Hence, he's very well placed to give us a lecture on the subject, Christian narratives and the well-lived life, to mystic reflections. Professor Wynne. Um, good evening. Uh, I trust you all can hear me all right. It's a great pleasure um, to be here on this occasion. And I trust that wherever you are, you are managing all right in these challenging times. And I hope that these few reflections I've put together for this evening are uh, in, in some fashion, uh, some, some sort of consolation or relief if, if at the present time you're uh, subject to a particularly challenging set of circumstances. So um, I'll get started. I'd like to thank Father Richard as director of the Aquinas Institute and his colleagues for their invitation to give this year's Aquinas lecture. I remember coming to Aquinas lectures when I was an undergraduate and graduate student in Oxford. And I learned a great deal from those occasions, which struck me as an outsider anyway, as a models of a kind of conversational inquiry firmly rooted within the life of a community. So for these personal reasons, deriving from my own intellectual biography, I'm especially glad and grateful to have this opportunity to try so far as I can to add a few further words to this ongoing tradition enacted once a year on the occasion of this lecture. As Father Richard has noted, today is of course the Feast of Thomas Aquinas and 2021 marks, I understand, the 800th anniversary of the Dominican presence in Oxford. And across the years, I've learned so much from the Oxford Dominican community, especially from my DPhil supervisor, Professor Davis, who's been mentioned already, and from their engagement with the work of Aquinas in particular. So for this reason too, I'm pleased to have this opportunity to say a little on this occasion as a small token of my appreciation for what I've received in intellectual terms from Dominicans in general and from this community, the Oxford community in particular. Of course, I'm sad we can't meet in person for this event, but it's good that we can at least meet and good that we have some prospect of being able to meet in person as this year unfolds. I might just pause there just <laughs> before racing on. Uh, do please uh, just let me know if there's any problem with the video or the audio to this point. Otherwise I shall just continue. So far so good. Okay, great, thank you. Since according to the title of this talk anyway, religious narratives are my theme, I'm going to begin with an example of a religious narrative. And to set the scene for our reflections, I'll start with a non-Christian narrative. In fact, with a narrative that lies beyond the horizon of recorded history and is therefore actually rather difficult to reconstruct from our vantage point. But I begin with this example as a way of calling to mind the importance for us as human beings, regardless of our cultural or historical location, of stories, especially stories which place our day-to-day -day activities within some larger frame of reference. As it happens, 
if I remember rightly, and I think I do because Father Richard has confirmed for me, one of the Aquinas lectures I attended those many years ago was given by Timothy McDermott some 30 years ago that lecture took place. And on that occasion, as I recall, Timothy developed the idea that talk of God can be read as talk of our ultimate environment. I think that was his phrase, ultimate environment. So I, I apologize if I'm, I'm garbling some of these details, uh, but I think I'm roughly on the right track. Anyway, some of the themes I'm going to develop in this talk, especially the idea of an encompassing story within which we can set our localized stories, point in a similar direction, I think, to Timothy's reflections on that evening. So I shall return to McDermott's proposal, supposing it is his proposal, at various points in this discussion. Right, here's my example. Uh, again, it's one that traces back to human prehistory. And I should just explain, since this example <laughs> I talk about at some length and you might think you've attended the wrong lecture uh, since it's not a Christian narrative at all. But from, from my point of view, the role of this narrative in this discussion is twofold. Uh, to draw our attention to features of the way in which Christian narratives work that we might otherwise overlook just because we're so very familiar with them. Most of us are so very familiar with them and perhaps also to engage, secondly, to engage in something like the project of natural theology. I mean, perhaps the emphasis here should fall on the something rather than the life by seeing how a Christian vision of the world in some way speaks to or emerges as appropriate in relation to, and in certain respects extends, the conception of the world that we might otherwise start to develop independently ref to, of reference to that vision. So that's my rationale for beginning with this non-Christian narrative and working out from there. In his 2018 text, Living with the Gods, Neil McGregor, one-time director of the British Museum, describes a discovery made in 1939 at a cave in, southwest, in the southwest of Germany, near Ulm, of a carving in ivory, in mammoth ivory. At the time, only fragments of the figure were recovered. They were not assembled until the late 1960s, at which point it became clear that the figure was that of a human being, but with the head of a cave lion. From radiocarbon dating, it seems the figure, now commonly known as the Lion Man, derives from about 40,000 years ago, so towards the end of the last ice age. And here is the image coming up now, if um, Brother Albert can, oh, there we go. Um, so this is one image of the Lion Man. It's a figure of about 30 centimeters tall. And could you bring up the next one too, Brother Albert? Thank you. There we go. So you can see there the, the curvature of the, the mammoth tusk and the way it's been exploited by the sculptor so that the, the figure is leaning forward slightly. And you can see too the way the sculptor has exploited the, the hollow space in the middle of the tusk um, for, the, for the legs of the lion man. So it would be nice to talk a bit more about that figure, but instead I think oh, we'll, we'll, pre <laughs> we'll press on. So I might invite Brother Albert to bring up the next bit of text on the slide. Thank you. So here's McGregor commenting on this artifact um, and noting that if this dating of 40,000 years ago is correct, it seems likely then, McGregor writes, this small sculpture, some 30 centimeters tall, holds a unique place in human history. It's not just a supreme representation of two closely observed species. It is by some margin the oldest evidence yet found of the human mind giving physical form to something which can never have been seen. For well, the first time we know of, a combination which could only exist in the imagination, an abstraction, has here been made physically graspable. Nature has been reimagined and reshaped. The boundary between human and animal dissolved. The lion man represents a cognitive leap to a world beyond nature and beyond human experience. The community that produced this sculpture, in fact, I, I might just invite, um, Brother Albert, to go back to the earlier image if people want to have a look at it. There it is, and I'll continue talking. Thank you. The community that produced the sculpture were, of course, very familiar with their physical environment, which they must have studied closely if they were to find the resources they needed to live and to avoid the unwanted attention of, among other things, cave lions and tusked mammoths. But as McGregor notes, in producing this figure, they clearly sought to evoke some more than physical or more than natural domain. Of course, we cannot know what exactly they sought to evoke, and I'm no paleoanthropologist, but speculatively, it seems at least somewhat plausible to suppose that in making this figure, which is neither simply human nor simply lion, these early human beings were thinking about their own identity. 
and seeing their identity, their human identity, is in some way connected to a more than human identity. And there is some reason to think that making this connection mattered deeply to them. After all, the individual, or perhaps individuals, who made this figure were clearly very experienced and skilled in their work and must have been released from other practically important activities in order to perform this task within a community that numbered MacGregor to just only a few dozen or at the most a few hundred people. And the object itself was found in a north-facing cave, which seems from the other objects found there as well as from its orientation, not to have been a living space, but another kind of space. Perhaps we may suppose a space reserved for ritual activities. Drawing out these considerations, McGregor offers this reading of our artifacts. So Brother Albert, if we could skip on two slides. Great. The best hypothesis in understanding the artifact is the people of the Lion Man made a great work of art, constructed a narrative. There we are, I'm keeping to the theme of narrative, linking the natural and supernatural worlds and enacted that narrative ceremonially with a wider community. This is something that all human societies have done, searching for patterns and then composing stories and rituals about them, which put us, all of us, in our cosmic place. It's not too difficult, I think, and it's rather moving, I think, to imagine this community of early human beings seeking to orient themselves in their rather demanding physical environment by rehearsing the stories of the lion man together and drawing strength from their presence to one another and their sharing in this story. It's rather a, a poignant image, I think, in that respect, a rather poignant uh, figure. In brief, on this view, McGregor's view, the role of religious narratives, such as the narrative to which this carved figure bears witness, albeit that we can't recover that narrative with any certainty, is to set human beings within a wider context, or as we might say following McDermott, a wider environment than that provided simply by our physical surroundings. And to do that, not for the sake of diversion of some sort, or in a merely speculative mood, but in a spirit of deep seriousness. That is, with a view to disclosing what human beings most fundamentally are, or what we are most fundamentally called to be, when our local stories are set within the framework provided by an encompassing, and perhaps all-encompassing story. And as McGregor emphasizes here, this habit of thought and imagination seems to span human societies across times and places. And it's for this reason, of course, that the Lion Man example is of some interest for us in this discussion. That is on account of its representative significance in disclosing a basic truth about the shape of human thought and desire. I take it that considered in broadly functional terms, Christian narratives play the same sort of role as the story of the caveman on McGregor's reading of that story, namely one of specifying and encompassing storied context, which ranges beyond what can be disclosed simply through our study of the natural world and in the light of which we can understand who we are and what we are called to be. Something like this perspective on the significance of Christian narrative seems to be what Aquinas is affirming at the very beginning, the very opening of the Summa Theologiae, when he writes in the opening lines of his the Responsio in question one, article one of the first part of that text. And Brother Albert, perhaps you could call it this text next. Thank you. I should say I hesitate rather to quote and try and expound text from Aquinas for an audience comprising, I take it, a reasonable number of Dominicans. But since this is the Aquinas lecture, I feel I ought at least to attempt something of the sort. And I hope my fumbling efforts will be excused when seen as a concession to the demands of the occasion. Anyway, here's the text. Aquinas writes, God destines us for an end that's beyond the grasp of reason. As we might put the point, an end that can't be disclosed simply from the observation or study of the natural world of mammoths and cave lions and other such entities. Now we have to recognize an end before we can stretch out and exert ourselves for it. Hence the necessity for our welfare, that divine truths surpassing reason should be signified to us through divine revelation. Here at the very beginning of the Summa Theologiae, Aquinas offers a view of the nature and rationale of the Christian revelation, which will of course provide the subject matter for the rather extended investigation he's about to undertake. On the view propounded here, the truths disclosed in the Christian revelation reach beyond what's evident simply from a properly attentive investigation of the physical world. That is, they run beyond, as he says, the grasp of reason. And the narratives that stand at the core of that revelation reveal to us, as Aquinas puts the point here, the end to which we're destined. And accordingly, these are identity defining and thereby practically orienting narratives, which tell us what we as human beings must do here and now 
in our relations to the everyday world, if we are to be true to what we might become and true to the persons that in a certain sense already we really are. Granted that we have such narratives, which deal not just with mountains and sunsets and cane toads and manatees or even cave lions and mammoths, but with a larger, more encompassing account of human possibilities, it's natural to ask, how are we to understand the relationship between narratives of this form, these encompassing narratives beyond nature, and the life that we're called to lead in our relations to the natural physical world here and now? So I'm going to address a couple of questions now. First, the question of the relationship between the kind of conduct or form of life that's appropriate with respect on the one hand to a nature-focused story about the world that reaches no further than toads and manatees and so on. And on the other hand, a more encompassing kind of story, such as the story of the lion man. And secondly, I'm going to think about a further question, how this more encompassing story makes a motivational difference. That is how it gives us reason for undertaking whatever additional activities or commitments may follow on from the introduction of such a narrative. So let's draw out just briefly some elements of Aquinas' account of these matters by reference to two passages from the Summa Theologiae. And here's a first, Brother Albert could move the slide along, thank you. It's evident that the measure of desires appointed by a rule of human reason is different from that appointed by a divine rule. For instance, in eating, you notice I took a drink at that point, the measure fixed by human reason is that food should not harm the health of the body nor hinder the use of reason. Whereas the divine rule requires that a human being should chastise their body and bring it into subjection by abstinence in food, drink and the like. In this passage, we see a twofold perspective on human life. One perspective on what we are to desire or in general on what the ends of our activity should be is provided by human reason. To take the particular subject matter that's in view in this passage, if we want to know what kind of diet is fitting for a human being, rather than say a porpoise or a tortoise, then we should refer to the appropriate empirically informed inquiry. Of course, the community that produced the lion man were familiar enough with inquiries into this subject matter, and they had no doubt relative to their circumstances, a very good understanding of their natural environment. But there is another vantage point on such questions about how to live, and Aquinas intimates, which arises when we consider those questions from the perspective, not of a rule of reason, as he puts it, but a divine rule. So in the brief, in the sphere of eating and drinking, there will be a pattern of consumption of food and drink that's appropriate relative to our physical context and a pattern that's appropriate relative to some further narrative about human beings, one that concerns a wider context, or as we might say, following McDermott, a wider environment, one that's more encompassing than any that can be picked out by means of a study of the physical world. Given the text from 1 Corinthians that Aquinas cites in this passage and Paul's reference in verse 25 of that text to a crown that will last forever, we should suppose that the wider context here concerns the truth that human beings are called to a life that's not reducible to this earthly life. On this view, who we are most fundamentally cannot be disclosed simply by reference to a survey of the contents of the physical world. And at this point, at least, Aquinas seems to be in agreement with the people who produced the figure of the lion man. Again, for these purposes, we're not interested in that community simply for itself, but because as McGregor notes, their lives stand for a wider pattern of thought and feeling that extends across cultures. And as the lion man demonstrates, also extends backwards in time to the earliest human communities. Granted this more encompassing conception of our context or environment, Aquinas is suggesting, we have a further understanding of what it takes to live well with respect to food and drink, or in general the objects of the bodily appetites, an understanding that runs beyond what can be grasped simply on the basis of what he calls here a rule of reason. Given this twofold perspective on a human life, one that relates to a rule of reason, what can be disclosed by reference to a study of the physical world, and one that relates to a divine rule, what's disclosed in a more encompassing narrative of human life, we want to know, of course, how these two vantage points relate to one another practically in terms of their implications for the kind of life that we are to lead. Let's consider this question with respect to Aquinas' example of food and drink. In this instance, it seems that adhering to the relevant divine rule will not involve any breach of what's required of us in the corresponding rule of reason. Why not? Because I take it religiously motivated abstinence from food and drink should not be such as to harm the body. 
And if this example is representative, then we should say that in general, the introduction of a theological narrative or more encompassing frame of reference or divine rule of thinking about the nature of the well-lived human life will result not in an overturning of the ideals of life that can be grounded in a rule of reason, but in what we might call a radicalizing of those ideals. To put the point in terms of our example, all those dietary practices that are consistent with the divine rule will also be consistent with the rule of reason that operates in this domain, because the divine rule, like the rule of reason, requires us not to harm the body. But it's not the case that all those dietary practices are consistent with the rule of reason, will be consistent with the corresponding divine rule, since the divine rule demands more of us than simply that we should not, in our habits of eating and drinking, harm the body. It also requires that those habits should be fitting relative to our identity, not simply as inhabitants of the physical world, but as people called to share in the life of God in eternity. So here's one thing to say about the relationship between Christian narratives and the nature of the well-lived life, if this case of dietary practice can be treated as representative. These narratives direct us to a new ideal of life, one that does not overturn the ideal of life that we can see to be appropriate simply by reference to our status as creatures belonging to the sensory world, but that does present a more stretching or stringent demand. In the case of the regulation of the appetites, the concern of the text I've cited, we might say that the ideal of life to which we're called is not simply one that does no harm to the body, but one that will fit the person to share in a life that's not to be identified with this earthly life. To put the point in biblical terms, we might say that this further ideal, grounded in a divine rule, is one that aspires to the condition of purity of heart, since it's the pure in heart who will see God, as the biblical text has it. Allowing that the ideal of life that's relative to a divine rule is more demanding than the ideal that's relative to the rule of reason. We want now to know how do the encompassing identity defining stories that define the content of a divine rule serve to ground or motivate this more demanding account of what it is for a human being to live well. Let's turn to another text where Aquinas addresses this question. In this passage, Aquinas is considering the ideal of life that stands at the core of the Christian conception of what it is to live well in our dealings with other human beings, namely neighbor love. And he's addressing the question of why Christians should take themselves to be subject to the requirements of neighbor love. Of course, there's one very straightforward answer to that question, because that way of life was after all mandated by Jesus. But, here, Aquinas gives another kind of answer to the question, one that appeals once again to an, an encompassing narrative about the future life of human beings. As it happens in this excerpt, he's considering the question of whether the angels are properly the objects of neighbor love. And that might seem a somewhat recherche concern from the point of view of many of us, but in responding to this question, he gives an answer of the same general form as when considering whether human beings are to be regarded as our neighbors. So we can take this passage to be addressed to that further issue too. And I might ask Brother Albert to move the, oh, you have, great, thank you. <laughs> Here we go, the friendship of charity, that's neighbor love, is founded upon the everlasting happiness in which human beings share in common with the angels. For it's written that in the resurrection, human beings shall be as the angels of God in heaven. It's therefore evident that the friendship of charity extends also to the angels by virtue of the fact that they will share in everlasting happiness. We're all familiar with the idea that the history of our relationship to a person can make a difference to our moral relationship to them in the present. To take a simple example, if I fail to keep a promise to someone, then in standard cases, I now owe them at least an explanation, if not an apology. In this excerpt, Aquinas seems to be interested in the rather different case of our future relationship to others, and specifically our relations to others in the eschatological future. And his thought seems to be that it's not only our relations to others in the past that can shape our moral relations to them in the present, but also our relationship to them in the eschatological future. In particular, he's interested here in the idea that if my relationship to another person in the eschatological future is one of sharing in the fundamental good of everlasting happiness, and accordingly one of deep-seated friendship, then that truth provides a measure for the appropriateness of my relations to the person in the present. And the idea seems to be in brief that if, any, if my relationship to the person in the present 
is to be adequate to the truth that I will one day share with them in the vision of God. Then my thoughts and feelings and behavior towards that person in the present will all need to conform to the standards of interpersonal relationship that define the ideal of neighbor love. As a rough analogy for this proposal, we could consider the case where I'm presented for the first time, this, uh, I'm calling an episode from my own life here, with my newborn child. My relationship to this individual in the present is fixed in large part, in, at the time when I'm introduced to the newborn child, is fixed in large part, I take it, not simply by our shared history, which at this point is rather limited, but also by the prospect of our shared future, which while somewhat indeterminate at this stage, still makes a real claim on me in the present. On the view presented in this text, to live according to the ideal of neighbor love is to think of our relations to others in the present by reference to the standards of friendship for the reason that we will one day enjoy a perfected relationship of friendship with them in the eschatological future. And the standard of friendship is of course a relatively demanding ideal for interpersonal relations. So in this respect, our second text concerning neighbor love is in agreement with our first concerning abstinence. In each case, an encompassing theological narrative, one that's grounded in our calling to share in the life of God in eternity, issues in a new and radically demanding sense of what it would take for us to live well in the present, relative to that conception of who we're called to be and who in a certain sense we already are. To say that this ideal is demanding might suggest that it's simply burdensome or onerous but for reasons I'll come on to shortly, it turns out that this kind of additional demand actually, on the Christian view, releases us into a new set of possibilities by enabling us to orient ourselves in the world with a new depth of insight, and in turn we might say a new freedom. Allowing for this parallel between our two texts that I've just noted, both involve a relatively demanding ideal of conduct, there are various differences between them. Um, Let's pause to note one, which is relevant to our question of how an ideal of life can be grounded in or motivated by an encompassing narrative. That is one that discloses the more than empirically discernible identity of human beings. As we've seen when discussing abstinence, the first of our texts, Aquinas appeals to a passage in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And perhaps that letter, I defer here to the biblical source, but perhaps that letter holds up abstinence or in general bodily discipline as the way of life that's appropriate for Christians for the reason that such a way of life is likely to improve a person's chances of attaining the afterlife or of gaining what Paul calls here an imperishable crown. In this text, Paul is drawing an analogy after all between the Christian life and the life of an athlete who's engaged in a program of training with a view presumably to improving their chances of winning a prize at the games and to do that and doing that through the exploitation of relevant causal connections between say level of fitness and speed around an athletics track. The passage concerning neighbor love that I cited seems to differ on this point. On a surface reading anyway, this passage seems to take the fact that we will one day share with others in the beatific vision as a reason for treating them as our neighbors now. On this reading, the implication of the text is that we can assess our relations to other human beings in the present as more or less apt, depending on the extent to which those relations measure up to a truth about our shared eschatological future. This appears then to be not a story about improving our chances of enjoying the busy vision by pulling appropriate causal levers, as it were, but a story about how we are to live now granted that this is our eschatological future. These two accounts needn't be in competition, I take it. If it's the pure in heart, who will see God, then living according to the ideal of purity of heart, here and now, will count as appropriate, both because purity of heart is a precondition of gaining admission to the heavenly life, and also because purity of heart is a form of life that's congruent with the truth that we will one day share with our fellow human beings and the angels in the life of God in eternity. Right, so I should pause. Okay, so far drawing on two texts from Aquinas, we've considered how Christian narratives and specifically the narrative according to which we human beings are called to share in the life of God in eternity can make a difference to our conception, what it takes 
for a human being to live well in practical terms here and now. And we've considered how those narratives provide the motivational resources so to live. And we've distinguished perhaps a little the kind of motivational resource that seems to be in play in the two texts we've discussed. In sum, the introduction of what we've been calling an encompassing narrative, or what Aquinas calls a divine rule, or reference to what we might call following McDermott, our ultimate environment, presents a new conception of what we're called to be in the eschatological future, and thereby it generates a more radical or more demanding ideal of life to which we are to conform in the present as a condition of being faithful to or living congruently with that more than empirical identity. Again, it's perhaps helpful to see the sense in such a way of seeking to orient ourselves in the everyday world by reference to an encompassing narrative by returning to the example of the lion man with which I began. As I've suggested, because this example is less familiar to us, very much less familiar to us, it enables us perhaps to bring to light certain features of the way in which Christian narratives operate that might otherwise escape our view, just because those narratives are so very well known. So here, we return to the question of how an encompassing narrative may enable us to engage more productively with the everyday world, so that the narrative releases us into new possibilities for thought and action. Jill Cook, an expert on prehistory based at the British Museum uh, and cited by McGregor in his book, comments of the Lion Man that, so Brother Albert, perhaps you could call up this text next. Thank you. It's an object that makes sense only if it is part of a story, what we might call now a myth. There must be a narrative or a ritual to accompany the statue that would explain its appearance and its meaning. What that story was, of course, we can now only guess. It was about humans and animals, obviously, but presumably it was also about something beyond ourselves, beyond nature, which can somehow help to strengthen a community and enable it to overcome dangers and difficulties. In brief, on this account of the matter, the Lion Man example shows what we have been calling encompassing narratives are concerned not simply with charting the nature of some more than physical world or of a supra empirical human identity, as though that were an end in itself, but with harnessing ideas about that world, the more than physical world, in the service of a deepened or more fruitful engagement with the everyday sensory world. See again Cook's comments about how such stories strengthen a community or enable it to overcome dangers and difficulties. And it seems natural to suppose that our forebears who produced the Lion Man and who had internalized this myth of the Lion Man found that their perceptual and in turn practical engagement with the sensory world was indeed changed through their entertaining of this myth. So that through their embrace of the story of another world, they were more not less receptive to the demands of our world the everyday physical world. No doubt we could speculate about how the stories worked this effect by encouraging these early human beings perhaps to think of themselves as somehow sharing in the power and cunning of the cave line, their most formidable adversary in the prehistoric landscape. But that, thinking about those matters, might take us too far from our present concerns. Allowing for the fact that he is not concerned with cave lions, I'm concerned that some people may find the analogy already too strange, but he's not concerned with cave lions or with the challenges of navigating a prehistoric natural environment, we might wonder, even so, whether we can ask, in a somewhat similar vein, about the difference that may be made to our perceptual and bodily demeanor in the everyday world by the encompassing story to which Aquinas appeals in the passages we've discussed. Let's take the example of neighbor love as our focus again. How might their supra-empirical conception of human identity that undergirds this account of the nature of the well-lived life make a difference to our bodily and perceptual orientation in the ordinary sensory world. So that's my theme now. It is of course immediately evident that if I'm to respect the requirements of neighbor love, then my thoughts and desires and behavior, all of these aspects of my everyday engagement with the world and with other human beings in particular, need to be ordered accordingly. Although Aquinas has not addressed the question directly, it seems reasonable to suppose that my perceptual relationship to the world also needs to be according 
ordered accordingly. So let's pause to think a little bit about how that might be so. So in brief, what I'm trying to do is take Aquinas' account of neighbor love, but to extend it as it were into another domain of life or another feature of the human being's engagement with the world, namely their perceptual engagement. It's of course the case that a given structuring of the perceptual field can be assessed for moral appropriateness. That structuring will be morally appropriate to the extent that the features of the perceptual field that are most deserving of attention in moral terms are relatively salient. That is to the extent that those features that stand out for me relative to other aspects of my perceptual environment, while those features which are less deserving of attention in moral terms are consigned to that periphery of my awareness. To take a simple example, uh, one that sounds a bit dated now in COVID times, if I'm in a railway carriage and a passenger next to me is in some discomfort because of having to remain standing while I'm while burdened with luggage, then my perception of the scene will be adequate in moral terms, other things being equal to the extent that I'm focally aware of this person's predicament and only peripherally aware of, say, the colour of the shoes of the passenger sitting next to me or the headlines of the newspaper that another passenger is reading. That's an example I've adapted from Lawrence Bloom. And by extension, it seems natural to suppose that a given ordering of the perceptual field can also be assessed as more or less appropriate in theological terms. That is, by reference to the values that are enshrined in a relevant, encompassing and identity-defining narrative. For example, if neighbor love considered as an ideal of life that's grounded in some such narrative makes a particularly stringent set of moral demands upon me, then my perceptual field will need to be informed by the corresponding pattern of salience if I am to be alert to what needs to be done in this particular situation of practical choice in order to measure up to those demands. To the extent that my perceptual field is indeed ordered according to the requisite patterns of salience, we might say that my perspective on the world will then mirror the divine perspective. That is, the items which are flagged as most important within my perceptual field by virtue of being relatively salient in my perceptual field will then be those items that count as most important from the divine vantage point. Perhaps John of the Cross, the 16th century Carmelite, has something like this case in view when he says of the condition of the person who has reached a state of spiritual maturity that, and I'll call on Brother Albert again to move the slide. Great, thank you. This is the great joy of this awakening, John writes, the awakening following the dark night of the soul, namely to know creatures in God and not God in his creatures. This is to know effect in their cause and not the cause by its effects. John's comments here read like a deliberate inversion of Aquinas' remarks in his prologue to the five ways in the Summa Theologiae where he distinguishes famously between two kinds of proof, what he calls a demonstratio queer and a demonstratio propter quid, arguing that where natural theology is concerned, we need to rely on the first kind of proof. That is, we need to start from a knowledge of creatures and arrive thereby at a knowledge of God, of the existence of God as the source of creatures. So that in this sense, we know the cause by its effects, as John puts the point, rather than the effects in their cause. In this passage, John seems to flip this order around, suggesting that from the perspective of the person of spiritual maturity, it's possible to start from a knowledge of God and to know creatures in God as their cause, rather than knowing God by reference to creatures as God's effects. We might try to understand at least part of what's involved in this proposal, if I read it correctly, by supposing that the perceptual field can be structured so that it conforms in the way we just discussed to a divine scale of values. For in that case, the world as it appears to us will map onto the world as it's understood from the divine vantage point because the world as it's represented to us in experience will then assign an importance to the items that show up in the perceptual field that's directly proportional to the importance that those items bear from the divine perspective. 
to the extent that a person stands in this perceptual condition, they would enjoy, we could say, a kind of window onto the divine mind or divine wisdom. Accordingly, we may think of encompassing narratives, not only as conferring upon us a new identity, but also potentially as giving us something like the divine perspective on the world. And when that perspective has been internalized, so that enacted freely and spontaneously, rather than by way of some process of ratiocination, then we have before us, we may suppose, the form of life that belongs to the saints. Here then is one way of understanding how the ideal of neighbor love as anchored in the relevant encompassing narrative concerning our shared eschatological future can inform not only our reflective understanding of the significance of other human beings, but also the way in which human beings and other relevant features of the sensory world are presented to us in experience. Accordingly, here again, we can see how an encompassing narrative, while it may concern the character of another supra-empirical world, can sharpen our perceptual engagement with the everyday sensory world, enabling us to track real features of that world, in this case, human beings and their needs, with new sensitivity. So in this way, an encompassing narrative can serve a distinctive practical stance in the world, one that's trained on, for example, the wants and interests of other people. Let's think next, very briefly, about a further way in which our dealings with the sensory world may be newly ordered to set alongside the idea that, that we may stand in a new perceptual relationship to the world, may be newly ordered when informed by the encompassing narrative of the beatific vision and the associated ideals of human solidarity. It is, of course, the case that if I am to act on the requirements of neighbor love, then, in relevant circumstances, I need to move my body accordingly. To take a simple example, I may need to extend my arm to offer someone a cup of water. Just coincidence that I reach for the water at that point. Here, the movement of my body counts as appropriate by reference to the standards of neighbor love, because that movement is morally efficacious. But an encompassing theological narrative such as the narrative of our sharing in the beatific vision, again, also inform our sense of how we are to comport ourselves in the world in bodily terms in another rather different way. So let's think about this other way. If we think of traditional depictions of figures of acknowledged sanctity, such as Christ or the Buddha or the figure of Mary, it seems that in these cases, the body's demeanor counts as appropriate relative to the relevant narrative, not because it's apt to produce good outcomes by way of some causal chain, but because here the fundamental import of the narrative is registered directly in, or as you might put it, that import shines through the disposition of the body. We could take Botticelli's famous Sestello Annunciation scene as an illustration. So I might call on Brother Albert to bring up this scene. Thank you. There we are. Um, I feel rather like pausing now and just allowing people to look at the image, which is much more engrossing than anything I might have to say about it, but let's proceed. Um, in this image, it's the content of the angel's address that constitutes the encompassing theological narrative. And the inflections of Mary's body count as appropriate relative to that narrative, not because they're morally efficacious, but because hereby she acts out, we might even say dances out, the deep significance of that disclosure. Her bodily demeanor would appear as graceful, no doubt, even to someone who had no knowledge of the details of this narrative context, the one presented in the angel's address, but is additionally graceful, once read as an acknowledgement, a graceful acknowledgement of what is disclosed in the angel's address. In the light of this sort of example, we could say that our mode of bodily presence in the world can count as apt relative to an encompassing narrative, not only when considered as behavior, where behavior counts as appropriate by virtue of promoting or having as a causal consequence good outcomes, but also when considered 
as what we might call, to distinguish this case from that of mere bodily behavior, demeanor. In passing, we may note that this example provides a further illustration of how an encompassing narrative may release us into a new and more creative set of possibilities, including in this case, the possibility of displaying in our lives a new kind of grace or beauty, one that would not otherwise be possible, and that arises insofar as our lives, including our lives in bodily terms, are fittingly adapted to the view of our ultimate environment that's recorded in the narrative. The following remarks of C.S. Lewis, and I might ask Brother Albert to call on the next slide. Thank you. Provide a further illustration of this further kind of appropriateness. That is one that concerns our mode of bodily presence in the world. Speaking of the new humanity of Christians, Lewis comments, their very voices and faces are different from ours. Stronger, quieter, happier, more radiant. While we may wish to take exception to some of the detail of Lewis's example, the general thought he advances here seems correct. If someone subscribes to, say, the Christian narrative, then it is only fitting that they should greet the everyday sensory world in this spirit of quiet radiance. In the light of Aquinas' account of neighbor love, we can see immediately how our well-directed thoughts and desires and behavior may all be open to assessment as more or less appropriate relative to the encompassing narrative of our sharing with other human beings in the beatific vision. In the spirit of Aquinas' discussion, I've been considering how not only these dimensions of our presence to the world, but in addition, our perceptual engagement with our everyday sensory environment and the inflections of our body or our physical demeanor in the sensory world may also count as more or less adequate with respect to that narrative. In these ways, we can see how this encompassing narrative and other such narratives can root a person in the sensory world in a distinctive way. Each such narrative or cluster of narratives enables, we may suppose, a particular style of bodily and perceptual comportment in the world. In other words, the Christian and other such narratives do not offer a merely theoretical perspective on the nature of the well-lived life. Rather, they are capable of placing their stamp on our experience of the everyday world and on the particular quality of bodily presence that we bring to bear in our relations to other human beings and the sensory world in general. In this way, I'm suggesting, we can elaborate a little on Aquinas' account of neighbor love, considered as a form of life that's appropriate relative to the encompassing narrative of our shared eschatological future. And we can do that, elaborate in this way, by considering how other dimensions of a human life, in addition to those that Aquinas considers explicitly, can also be folded into a story of the nature of the good human life that flows from that narrative. And in particular, we've been considering, of course, the role of perception and bodily comportment in defining the nature of the well-lived life from a Christian point of view. These reflections also provide a way of elaborating on Aquinas' claim, made as we've seen at the very beginning of the Summa Theologiae, that the narratives of the Christian revelation are action-guiding or serve to orient us in the world in practical terms rather than simply affording a theoretical insight of some sort. Right, I am getting to the, towards the close, <laughs> um, if you're still there. We've been considering various ways of representing the relationship between encompassing Christian narratives, specifically the narrative of our sharing with other human beings in the beatific vision, and the nature of the well-lived life. And in turn, we've noted first, the difference that's made by the introduction of such a narrative to our conception of the good life in practical terms and how such a conception may involve a relatively stringent ideal of life compared with the ideal that would follow from a rule of reason. And secondly, we've examined the nature of the connection between such narratives, encompassing narratives, and the claim they make upon us in the present, here noting how the way of life that's appropriate 
to the narrative may be understood in terms of its fittingness or congruence rather than in terms of its improving our chances of bringing about causally some outcome. And finally, we've also considered how such narratives may carry implications, not only for our thoughts, behavior, and desires, but also for our perceptual relationship to the world, and in general, our mode of bodily comportment or our demeanor, rather than simply behavior in the world. And in turn, we've observed how these narratives may release us thereby into a newly productive, and we might even say newly beautiful form of engagement with our sensory environment. To conclude, I want to return to the example of the Lion Man and to pick out two further features of that example that may be of some interest when we consider more generally the relationship between encompassing narratives and a corresponding ideal of life. And Brother Albert, you might want to move on to the next, oh no, sorry, move back a slide. <laughs> I got ahead of myself, thank you. Um, okay. Here we shall be concerned not so much with the question of the difference that's made for our ideal of life by a given encompassing narrative, but the question of how the deep import of that narrative is to be recognized in such a way as to take root in the personality. So the question is how, how, how is it these stories are somehow appropriated? in ways that leave their mark upon you know, the basic springs of the personality. First of all, speaking of the Lion Man artifact, Neil McGregor observes that it's recently been discovered, here quoting, that the irregularities you would expect to find on the surface of mammoth ivory are not present. They've been smoothed away as a consequence of prolonged handling. Uh, end of quotation. And drawing on the views of specialists in the field, McGregor conjectures that, quote, the Lion Man must have been held by many people over many years, possibly even over several generations, end quote. So there's an interesting phenomenon. The, 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 the Lion Man statue looks as though it's been handled um, by many people over a considerable time. So far, we've been interested in the idea that the stories associated with the Lion Man might have given these early human beings a new sense of their identity and thereby drawn them into newly productive ways of engaging with the sensory world. This further discovery may perhaps suggest something about the way in which these stories were communicated. That is in such a manner as to be impressed upon the senses and the imagination of those who heard them. In brief on this account, not only is the living out or enactment of the import of such stories a profoundly physical matter, extending to the person's perceptual and bodily stance in the world, as we've seen. But so it seems, is a profoundly physical matter, is the initial reception of their meaning. And if McGregor is right, then these particular stories were first of all understood and their significance apprehended and internalized through handling or tactile contact with a figure that in some fashion embodies the story. Secondly, Again, conjecturally, of course, McGregor comments that, and uh, Brother Albert, could you move the slide? Thank you. Though the Lion Man seems to have been kept at the back of the startled cave, there's only one place where his story could have been told. It's the place of visions, the place where stories have always been told, around the flickering, magical, warming, and dangerous fire. As it happens, I think it's convenient for McGregor's um, book that he makes a claim towards the end of the chapter, because his next chapter, um, is on Zoroastrian fire cults. But anyway, bracketing that point. Here again, we find the idea that the communication of these stories, such as those involved in the Lion Man's figure, was not just a matter of recounting them verbally. In addition, the immediate sensory environment would have been structured so as to ensure that the sense of the story was received, we might say, not simply by the discursive intellect, but by the person considered in their psychosensory integrity. From further archaeological finds in the vicinity of the Stadel Cave and contemporaneous with the Lion Man, it seems likely that music as well as light and haptic experience would have been central to the ritual space within which stories of the Lion Man were rehearsed. Supposing that the Lion Man represented for these people the deepest truth concerning their identity, 
this ritual space would then have afforded them an opportunity not just to hear about that identity, but in a way to commune with it in sensory form. And while not wanting to make too clumsy an assimilation, I suspect it is too clumsy an assimilation <laughs> one case or the other, on a standard Christian reading, the rite of the Eucharist offers, of course, supremely an encounter of this same sort. For here, under the guise of sensory forms, and with the support of a surrounding sensory space, the believer handles and even ingests that reality, which, to use McGregor's form of words once again, constitutes the fundamental pattern of things, a pattern which puts us, as McGregor says, all of us in our cosmic place. For most of this discussion, in the light of two texts from Aquinas, we've been considering the relation between encompassing theological narratives and the narrative of our sharing of the beatific vision in particular, and our conception of the nature of the well-lived life and the nature of the demands that are typical of that life and the kind of appropriateness that defines the central commitments of this life and the role of the body with respect to perception and comportment in the living out of that life. But in these concluding remarks, I've tried to touch just briefly on this further question. Allowing that encompassing narratives can inform our sense of the nature of the well-lived life in the ways we've considered. How is our apprehension of the sense of those stories to be received transformationally? In other words, how is the person to take on the new identity that's offered to them in the narrative in such a way as to be able to live it out with poise and conviction. And in reply to this question, I've simply pointed in the direction of the thought that what we need for such a transformation, or at least one significant enabling condition of such a transformation, is for the narrative to be presented to us in sensory, and perhaps including here, tactile form. In that case, we can encounter the storied meanings that are embedded in an encompassing narrative, body to body, so that our relationship to them, to those meanings, is not simply a matter of intellectual assent, but we might even say one of incorporation. And that finishes my talk. <laughs> so I might just ask Brother Albert, could you move the slide on one more? Ah, there we go. So that we now have once again um, the scene of the Lion Man. So I apologize, I think I probably rather overrun, um, but um, I will now um, hold my peace. Thank you. I'm afraid we don't have any canned applause to broadcast over Zoom or YouTube, but I'd like to thank Professor Wynne very warmly for an extremely attractive and illuminating lecture, which certainly for me helped an awful lot of things fall into place really rather beautifully. Professor Wynne has graciously agreed to respond to questions and a few have come in, but I'd like first to invite um, Father Oliver Keenan to give a brief response which he has very graciously agreed to give. And then he will relay to Professor Wynne the questions that have come in. And we can go on for a question session um, to about 25 past six, I would think, which is our usual time for finishing. So many thanks again. Thank you, Professor Wynne. Uh, can you hear me? You can, that's great. And thank you both for a really stimulating and enjoyable lecture, but also for the collegial way in which you've approached this, uh, this discussion in the quest for the truth. To those who are uh, watching from home, it's not too early to put your questions in. As I'm talking, please do submit your questions, Brother Albert and I will be filtering them and, uh, and uh, inviting Professor Wynne to respond uh, as soon as I'm done. Now, if I understood your lecture correctly, Professor Wynne, you're suggesting in part that the contemporary credibility of Christianity depends not only on our capacity to argue for the truth, but also on our capacity to narrate 
to fundamentally tell a story about what it means to be human in the light of the future promised to us in Christ. To put this methodologically, narration and argumentation are not mutually exclusive. They're complementary modes by which we come to knowledge of the truth and in which the truth is necessarily apprehended, even if at one time or another, one of those modes will predominate. In other words, to give narrative the type of attention that we've given it this evening is to say something about the character of truth itself and the ways in which it's known and disclosed. And it's that element of Professor Wynne's proposal that I'd like to reflect on, though I realize it does move in a slightly different direction to his ethical reflections. For many theologians in the 20th century, attentiveness to narrative came at the expense of metaphysics. Narrative theologians are generally more interested in the question of divine identity than they are the question of divine being. They focus on who God is for us rather than the what of God's own innate triune perfection. But narrative, as Professor Wynne has presented it, is non-competitive with respect to metaphysics, as his analysis of desire, of human flourishing, and objectivity suggests. Yet there does remain the question of the metaphysical status of narrative itself. Is narrative somehow primordial with being? Does it follow from being? Or to use the terms of the paper, how does the encompassing narrative relate to our ultimate environment in God? By signification or by symbolization or participation or some other way? Let us suppose that God is the ultimate encompassing narrator. Is the Christian encompassing narrative a simple description of future glory? Or does it in some way proleptically anticipate that future glory? Or is it perhaps identical with the Visio Beatifica itself? Perhaps narrative is too sequential for God and yet too discursive for the beatific vision. But the fact that encompassing narratives, as Professor Wynne presents them, revert to the senses is, I think, importantly clarificatory here, not least given the hints of fideism that inevitably haunt theological appeals to narrative. On account of the role that objects play in Professor Wynne's analysis, there can be no suggestion that narratives are entirely immune from extra systematic critique, nor are they merely idealistic projections. But nonetheless, there is still something of a feedback loop here. Lion Man mediates a narrative, but is also in one sense mediated by that narrative. And for that reason, the meaning of the figure is partially incomprehensible and inaccessible to us. So the narratives we indwell seem not only to revert to the senses, but also to reconfigure them so that when we dwell within those narratives, we see more than we would otherwise. Far from abstracting from the materiality of sense perception, narrative here is summoning us to go deeper into the world, to engage more incarnationally with the world around us. And in fact, there's something almost corporeal about narratives themselves. They almost extend our bodily capacities, our capacities for sensory engagement are enlarged in just the same way we might think as grace perfects nature. So there's something deeply Thomistic about this, not only in its refusal to despise the incarnational, but also in its positing of physics and metaphysics together. Yet we're dealing at least to some extent with a practice, albeit a practice that accompanies particular objects. Narratives don't exist aside from their telling and their retelling. But when it comes to the encompassing narrative of Christianity, who is the primary agent? Is this narrational capacity something derived from the amphibious character of the human creature as the animal that uniquely wants to make visible that which is invisible? Well, in which case, do angels have narratives? Or is narrative the character of creaturely being itself as it maps onto the great uh, exodus and raditus, the coming forth from God and the return to God? 
And this points to a second set of questions and areas of interest. On one level, the Christian narrative is notably comparable with other encompassing narratives. But wouldn't Thomas want to stress that the Christian narrative differs in both kind and degree from other narratives? So what is it that provides for the uniqueness of the Christian encompassing narrative here? The function of the narrative, after all, ought not to be distinguished entirely from its content. And the Christian encompassing narrative is not only transnatural, but also supernatural and authentically so. As Professor Wynne observes, the role that ritual plays in mediating religious narrative is especially important here, and in particular, the sacramental character of Christian liturgy. There is a kind of hyper-realistic form of Eucharistic narration, wherein form and content perfectly coincide, and this secures an account of narrative in which the subject is not ab absent from the world of mediating objects. Finally, I just want to say that I found the talk, uh, the lecture, extremely consoling in these difficult times. The idea of nesting of localized particular narratives within an encompassing narrative seems particularly potent at this moment. Too often, theological appeal to narrative deploys narrative as a principle of unity, whether of a life or of the covenantal history of God's sacrificial dealings with humanity and so on. But oftentimes it doesn't pay due attention to the presence of tragedy and the scandal of sin and the ways in which individual lives are profoundly disrupted by the forces of evil. Our perfections have not yet been smoothed away in the way that lion mans have. But if our localized and personal narratives are now here and now being held together by incorporation into an encompassing divine human narrative, then our appeal to Christian encompassing narrative need not deny the reality of disruption and dislocation, but can still see that our disrupted lives are somehow held together by the God of love.